Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. Ordinary Christians is the title, and you will see why. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. You know, it's, uh, it's like you're reading a journal, right? Uh, Luke is keeping a journal of all these things that have been going on, and these events, and so on. And in Acts chapter 8, we read how the disciples were scattered due to the great persecution that began right after Stephen was martyred. Now, here in Acts 11, Luke is returning to that narrative to tell us about the, the disciples who fled Jerusalem and specifically went to Antioch. Antioch was an ancient Greek city. And by the first century, by the time of Jesus, by the time of this early church, by this first century, it had become one of the most important cities of the eastern Mediterranean half of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire extending in all those areas, you know, down through that, that Israel and everything else, but going up into what's, you know, Turkey and all of those places. But on the Mediterranean Sea, what would have been the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, this is the city of Antioch. And the name Antioch shows up in multiple places. It wasn't just this one location, but this is the primary location or the, the one that we are looking at here. It's in this Mediterranean half, the Roman Empire. And the city of Antioch still exists today in modern Turkey. It is called Antakya or Antakya, which is the Arabic name for Antioch. So Antioch, you know, as a city still there, was quite prominent in the past. Now, Antioch plays a very important role in the ministry and missionary journeys of Paul. You'll 
keep seeing the references to Antioch when you read as we continue to read and go through Acts and read about Paul's missionary journeys. Right. So, so this is a a strong church that's being established here. This is a sending church. This is a giving church. All lots of different things for us to understand from this church. And it is the place where non-Jewish, Gentile, or Greek, as it's referred to here, that those, that group of believers were established. And they were clearly identified here as belonging to Christos, which is the Greek word for the anointed one. Right? In, in the Jewish context, they would have referred to the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah. But in this context, much more in that Greek context, they would have referred more commonly to Christos. And so here, for the first time, we now have the followers of Christos being identified or being referred to as Christians. So when we today say we are Christians, we are tracing our roots to Antioch. And you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church in, in a lot of the parts of the world, the east of this area, and particularly in India and other places, the Eastern Orthodox Church traces its roots and its church leadership to Antioch. But I want to note, I want you to notice the genesis of the church in Antioch in verses 20 and 21. Some of them, some of these men, from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. No names, no descriptions of who these men are. Unnamed men went to Antioch, declared the gospel, ministered in the power and favor of God. The Lord's hand was with them, and the church grew. No grand descriptions of their lives, no special or distinctive features, except to say, except to note, that these men were merely doing what Jesus had asked them to do. Just a journal entry of ordinary Christians living ordinary, God-directed lives. You know, almost... Every book, movie, song, and friend telling us about the latest adventure that, has, that they've had has conditioned us to think that life should be filled with excitement, thrills, romantic fireworks, extraordinary experiences. Right? That, that, you know, every, every, everything is saying that's, that's what life should be. A thrill. Ordinary is boring. Ordinary is so ordinary. And you think, as you hear all this, I must be missing something in my life. I'm certainly missing something in my marriage. And I must be missing something in my job, right? I mean, you listen to all this stuff and you're like, ah, I, don't, I don't have this excitement. And it's not just the world that sends you this message. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you may have heard somebody in the church 
say that Christians should be radical, should be passionate, should be visionary. We should have mountain, mountain top and mountain moving faith and we should accomplish great things for God. And you hear the stories, the testimonies of those who have really done remarkable things for God. You know, the missionaries who are coming back and we're getting you know, ready pretty soon here in March to have missions month and we'll hear testimonies. And, and you hear these stories and you hear these examples and you go, wow, wow. It may make you feel that you're not measuring up. That you haven't achieved what you should achieve. By this time, I should have done all these other things. And nobody even notices what you do. These people, Peter, Paul, the missionaries, they must be the A team. I must be on the B team. Right? That's how we think about our lives. And we get these messages that seem to reinforce that. But you see, Jesus doesn't measure our worth by the magnitude of our achievements. Jesus' word to us is to simply be obedient and faithful. That means, if you're relying on the power and favor of God every day to just do your job, take care of the home, maybe even forego a career or other pursuits so that you can raise the children, maybe that you're doing something very mundane and you're seeking to live at peace with others, you take care of the needy, you fellowship with your brothers and your sisters. You seek God's wisdom. And you stay in step with the Spirit. Then in your everyday, ordinary life, you are accomplishing all that the Lord wants you to accomplish. If you are living in the will of God, there is no better place for you to be. There are, however, three extraordinary characteristics of ordinary Christians. And the first one is this. Ordinary Christians are called to make extraordinary claims. Ordinary Christians are called to make extraordinary claims. See, when Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because we have that same authority now given to us, delegated to us, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That he is with us, that he will return. I mean, just when you read those words, you've got to understand that Jesus is telling us to tell people something, a message, that is quite incredible, quite extraordinary. These claims about an almighty creator God who loves us and gave his life for us sounds too good to be true. This idea that there is 
Jesus who's going to return, he's going to come, the second coming of Jesus, and he'll come in the clouds with a heavenly host, and he'll usher in an eternal reign of his kingdom. That sounds like science fiction. Sounds like some, you know, alien movie. Aliens coming, right? What the Bible claims as truth are a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So we can't make these incredible truth claims convincingly unless we are sure that they are in fact credible. That they are true. If we don't believe them, we're not going to be able to say this to anybody and say to them, this is what Jesus says. It is when we are living out these truths in our own everyday lives that we can share them with others. Those that we are speaking to, they see the word of God being practically applied in our lives. They see that this word of God is not fiction and it's not for some past era, some, you know, unsophisticated, ignorant generation of the past that didn't know the things that we know now. No, they see that the word of God is reality in our lives. It's being lived out. They see that human beings can have a relationship with God because they see our relationship with God. We don't have to be skilled orators, trained apologists, dramatic, pushy, nothing. We just have to let the extraordinary content of the gospel message become relevant to everyone that we encounter because they see it lived out in our ordinary lives. Extraordinary claims lived out in ordinary lives. You want an entirely supernatural, extraordinary life? Live according to the word of God. Live according to these fantastic claims. Live according to these incredible truth claims of the word of God. So our ordinary Christians are called to make extraordinary claims, which brings us to the second you know, extraordinary characteristic. Ordinary Christians are called to extraordinary obedience. See, in order to live out the truths of the Bible in our everyday lives, there has to be a willingness in us to quickly obey whatever the Lord tells us to do. And, you know, when we were praying in our 21 days of prayer and fasting, we were praying particularly about Proverbs or praying through Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, which says, which reminds us that we don't lean on our own understanding, on our own wisdom, on our own thinking. Instead, in all our ways, we submit it to God and we obey him. We trust him to make our path straight. We're saying, Lord, this is what seems to be ahead of me. This is what I'm thinking. This is what is the consideration. What do I do? 
Give me your wisdom. And the Lord says, do this. And I said, great. I take that step. I step into, I step out in what the Lord shows me to do. And I'm not trusting in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own ways. When I do that, when I obey the Lord, when I'm looking to him, that means that as I'm actively listening to God, trusting, having faith, submitting, being content, all of that accompanies and is necessary, it supports my obedience to God. But to consistently and to joyfully obey God in all things, not grumbling, not with complaining, not, oh, I have to do this, you know, my, my parents made me, you know, my God made me, you know, but to consistently and joyfully obey God in all things at all times is not easy. It's an extraordinary obedience that we need. You know, I mean, we think about if, you've, if you're asked, are you generally obedient to all the laws of the land or are you obedient to the laws of the land? We say, yeah, yeah, sure. But are we? We break laws all the time. When we are in the presence of God and when we want to obey what the Lord is telling us to obey, obeying, obeying God is not ordinary. It takes an extraordinary measure of everything. So what, what does that mean? We need this extraordinary wisdom of God. We need the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit. We need the extraordinary leadership, guidance of the head, which is Jesus. And we need the assistance and mutual edification of the body, which is the church. Without all those things happening, very tough to obey. If, you're really, you know, if you don't have the wisdom of God that's coming to you and that's showing you this is the way, walk in it, telling you this is the way, walk in it, very tough. If we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us, filling us, giving us the strength to walk and run and not grow weary, not grow faint, to have the, and to bear us up on eagle's wings when we do start to faint, when we, if we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in us and working through us, very tough to walk, very tough to obey, very tough to do this. If we don't have that looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, looking to Jesus, the head, looking to make sure that everything is flowing from him, everything aligns under him. If we don't have that, very difficult to obey. And if we don't have encouragement, if we're not connected into the body of Christ, if there isn't where we are lacking, somebody else is able to help and to support, and where that person is lacking, we are able to help and to support and to exercise spiritual gifts and to work in body ministry in that way. If that's not happening, if we're not holding each other accountable, if we're not saying to one another, keep going forward in this area, this is what the Lord is calling us to, let's obey, let's do this. Very hard to obey. So, extraordinary call to obedience. It's not just, you know, yeah, yeah, I can do that. You know, whatever the Lord tells me to do, I'll do it. No. You're thinking too highly of yourself and your ability. We need all of these things and we have to depend on God so that we can be living in this kind of extraordinary obedience. But as we obey God, as we see his plans and purposes fulfilled in our lives, in our families, and in our church, 
we see that obedience to God has the desired result, has the desired outcome. So you want to see extraordinary things happen in your life? Obey the word of God. And this last point, the main point that I want to make, and we will spend most of our time here, is this. As you witness the work of God in your life, as we witness the work of God in our lives, we need to remember that ordinary Christians are called to extraordinary humility. Ordinary Christians are called to make these just amazing claims and live these amazing truths. And in order to do that, ordinary Christians are empowered in extraordinary ways to extraordinarily obey God himself. But in doing all of that, and you see the work of God in your life, you know, it is very, very easy to start saying, look at what I am doing. Look at what I have done. Look at these things that I have obeyed, or the ways in which I have obeyed. And the Bible consistently, repeatedly, calls us to extraordinary humility. So I started out this message by pointing to those nameless, ordinary Christians in Antioch who accomplished great things for God. Right? I mean, they didn't no, no, they don't seem to be even referred to later on, but you know that this was the establishment, the foundation of something very strong, very powerful. But in that whole account that we read, there are also some named individuals. Right? We have Barnabas, we have Saul, we have Agabus, Agabus, mighty men of God, apostle, prophet. Others uh, could emulate these guys. Right? They, they would look up to them. They would emulate them. In fact, in Acts 19.11, we're going to get to this in some weeks' time, but in Acts 19.11, it says that God worked unusual, extraordinary miracles through Paul. I mean, if the Bible has to record that, God worked unusual miracles through Paul. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I mean, we read these things here. We're, you know, I'm saying these are extraordinary claims. We're reading these accounts of these miracles and signs and wonders. And then, just as a passing statement, Luke is saying, God worked unusual miracles through Paul. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, extraordinary things happening with these gentlemen, with these guys. Right? But I wanted to highlight two points about them. And really, every other prominent person we, we see in the book of Acts, this is, these two things hold true. The events of the book of Acts occurred over a period of about 30 to 35 years. This is not, you know, this happened, next day this happened, next day this happened, next day this happened, then they went there, they came back, then the next day this. It's not just giving us a short period of time. It's recording events that took place about 30 to 35 years. And that means that although Barnabas, Saul, and Agabus were each used by God in some very notable ways that are recorded for us in the scripture, they actually lived for many, many years just going about their normal, everyday, obedient to God, ordinary lives with no record of those days in scripture. 
you can be sure that they just had ordinary days. You know, they just woke up, did their thing, went to sleep, got up the next morning. I mean, just ordinary days. So over 35 years or so. So we read these incidents and we say, oh, look at that. But this is the truth for their lives. But here, secondly, and even much more importantly, Barnabas, Saul, Agabus, and every one of the disciples we encounter in the book of Acts live in extraordinary humility. They don't think too highly of themselves. They don't draw attention to themselves. They don't promote their agenda. They point to Jesus. They glorify Jesus. They lift up the name of Jesus so that everyone will be drawn to Jesus, not them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, after he's done describing all the things that he has done and all the things that he's gone through, all the accomplishments that he could easily boast about, in verse 30 of 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast on the things that show my weakness. Because he said, when I am weak, then he is strong. What will I boast about? What will I talk about? I'll talk about when I am weak. Because when I am weak and the strength of God is manifest, the strength of God is clear, people look at that situation and they say, definitely not Paul. This was clearly the work of God. Great, I'll boast about that. I'll talk about that. I'll highlight that. I'll make that known. Paul boasts of the cross of Christ. Paul boasts of the grace of God. Paul's boast is in the Lord. You see, every one of us is special to God. He loves each one of us uniquely in a very special way. And he has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for your life that is the best possible plan for you. That will maximize your potential and enable your success. And that success, that success that the Lord can bring you into, again, not measured in terms of the world's criteria for success, but based entirely on how the Lord would commend you, how the Lord would speak about your actions, that success may not be seen by very many people. That's not at all something then that you need to be concerned about. Who knows what I have done for the Lord? Nobody. Oh, I better change that. Better go put a blog post. Better post a you know, picture on Instagram of this thing that I was doing. I mean, we think that somebody needs to know what we have done. But maybe no one needs to know. Because the most important person knows. God knows. He ensures that your true success, that your success in him, that may not be celebrated in the world, is celebrated in heaven. Is known to him. He rejoices over you being good and faithful. 
He rejoices over you being obedient. You don't have to wait and say, well, how many other people knew about this? Now, having said that, that your success may not be visible to all, let me also say that it may be that the success that the Lord has for your life is seen by a significant number of people. You may become the CEO of a company. You may manage great wealth. You may come up with some incredible invention. You may sing an indelible song. Can't get it out of your head. Oh, can't get it out of your mind, right? That song, ooh. You may make an unforgettable award-winning movie. You may achieve prominence in government, healthcare, media, industry, arts, sports, music, or some other sphere of influence. Wherever the Lord leads you, there's nothing wrong with working hard and being ambitious to get to that, what the Lord is calling you to. As long as it's not selfish ambition. If you're waiting on the Lord, receiving his wisdom, and know what he is calling you to, then by all means, pursue what he's calling you to, pursue that goal with zeal, with preparation, with everything that's in you, go for it. And you should be learning. Maybe it's formal education, maybe it's informal education. You should be learning. You should be getting trained, building up the skills, exercising them in every way that you can, seeking the ways in which the Lord would open doors and do things, seeking counsel, being disciplined, being diligent, being willing to sacrifice short-term pleasure for long-term gain, and wholeheartedly follow what the Lord is laying out for you. Go for it. Do it. But wherever the Lord leads you, whenever he leads you there, and this is important, whether it's in public or very private, you have to be humble. And this humility that the Lord calls us to, start now. Because it is only if you are humble and you understand this extraordinary humility that the Lord is calling you to, it's only if you understand that and start to live that when you, before you have great success, that you will remain humble after you have great success. If you don't know what humility is now, you will not be humble when the Lord starts to do things in your life. And, and I'm, again, we can always say to ourselves, I'm a pretty humble person, right? The true test of humility comes when there is opportunity to boast, to brag, to do something else. And satisfaction, contentment, having an eternal versus a temporal perspective are all vitally important for this biblical humility. But it, 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 it's, I don't need to say this, it should be very clear, that the world makes it very difficult to live out this extraordinary humility that God calls us to. Because the constant message you'll hear in the world is, you've got to promote yourself. It's not just even about the company brand anymore, it's about your personal brand. What do you do to show yourself? 
That's the message of the world. How do you present yourself? How should you look out for yourself because nobody else is looking out for you? And you need to brag about yourself. The very resume that you create, the very resume that you create to be able to apply for a job is what? A bragging. I've done this and I've done that and I'll exaggerate this a little bit more. And, and not just, and maybe, maybe it's a humble brag. You know, I, I, I couldn't have done it with everybody else, but you know, I did. You know, and, but, but we brag because the world tells us that's what you should do. You should be lifting up. You should be promoting yourself. You should be doing these things because otherwise, oh, you won't get ahead. The Bible, in complete contrast, says that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will exalt us at the right time. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. The Bible says that if we don't worry about who gets the credit, if we don't cut someone else down because we think that that's the only way that we can come up, if we will be patient, if we will be kind and compassionate to others, if we will willingly and sacrificially serve somebody else and prefer them over ourselves and they may even get ahead when we don't seem to be, if we will look to the Lord and deliberately, daily, clothe ourselves, you know, take this action of clothing ourselves with humility. The Bible says that the Lord will give us his grace. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. When we are humble, these are verses that are specifically linked to humility. When we are humble, it says, the Lord will give us his wisdom. That's in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2. When we are humble, when we humble ourselves and we pray, when we cry out, when the Lord says, you know, when there's sin in the land and you humble yourself and you cry out to me, I will hear from heaven and heal the land. He answers our prayer when we humble ourselves. That's in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And when we humble ourselves and come to the Lord, the Bible says in Psalm 25, verse 9, He gives us the instruction, the teaching for the way that we should go. He says, hey, let me tell you exactly what you can do. We don't have to be confused. We don't have to be uncertain. We're not, uh, what's next? We say, Lord, I humble myself before you and I ask you, and he says, here, take this path. Take this step. And we go, yeah. He gives us instruction. And then the Bible says in Psalm 149, verse 4, when we humble ourselves, he gives us his salvation. He saves us. He redeems us. He renews us. And then in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, it says, when we humble ourselves, he rewards us with riches, with honor, and with life. What have you been seeking? Where have you been seeking it? Have you truly been coming to the Lord and saying, Lord God, I want your wisdom. I want your work in my life. I want your truth to change me. Or are you coming to the Lord in your own 
self, everything. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, He is faithful to live and to move in us in this way. And so here's the thing. We respond to what the Lord is doing in our lives in a very simple way. We live, we commit to live ordinary Christian lives. Because the Christian life is extraordinary. It surpasses anything. It is fantastic. It is beyond what the world can give you. And so when we live according to the biblical pattern of life, when we obey God, when we are humble, when we live our ordinary Christian life, we can be sure that the most fulfilling, the most exciting, the most rewarding life on earth can come as we live like this. Which means that to apply this word of God, we want to proclaim the extraordinary message of the gospel to others. We want to be empowered by the same extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And as our obedience to God results in long-lasting, incorruptible fruit, and He exalts us, we want to live in extraordinary humility. This morning, you know, there may be some of you here who are saying, as I mentioned right at the beginning, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing really what I should be. I'm not sure if I'm really living for the Lord in the right way. I'm not sure that I'm getting the results that I should. Or you may be saying to yourself, yeah, you know, I've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I've been toiling away. I've been doing all this stuff. I've been faithful. But yeah, nobody even knows about it. Nobody even acknowledges me. Nobody even thanks me, nothing. I just keep doing all this stuff. And maybe you're looking around and seeing people all around you that seem to be in the limelight. Even in the church. Don't worry about it. Be faithful to live in the way that the Lord has called you to live. Be faithful to the calling of God in your life. What has he asked you to do? And by the way, this is not something that he has to have told you about this at age 20. And now, you know, at age 50, it's too late. No. Look at the examples in the word of God and those around you. People have been obedient to the Lord at every stage of their life and sometimes coming to know this, the, these truths of God very late in their life. It doesn't matter. When we come to know, when we attain these truths, when we understand that this is what the Lord is speaking to us, let us live up to that. Let us come to him and say, Oh Lord God, thank you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for these incredible things. Thank you, Lord, that you are giving me this ability. So my ambition, what I aspire for, what I want as I go forward, Lord, is nothing more than to live an ordinary Christian life.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, your word is good for us. It encourages us, it builds us up, and it helps us, Lord, to have the right perspective. That, Lord, we would not think too highly of ourselves. And, Lord, no matter where we are and what we're doing, that we would come back to you and say, Lord God, you guide and direct my steps. There is nothing better for me than to be in the will of God. There is no better place for me to be than in you. Lord God, thank you, Lord, that as we do that, you are faithful. You are good. And you, Lord, fulfill all things that are good and right and the perfect will of God for our lives. So we trust you and give you all of our lives. Praying this in Jesus' name. Amen.